Oh, we are uh, in the midst of our 40-day journey, our 40 days of, of prayer, and uh, we've got a couple more weeks in that, and very excited. In the group time, you're going to be focusing on, on uh, time to how to pray for a breakthrough, uh, how to pray in the midst of a crisis. Next week, I'm excited, going to bring a message that I think is going to be uh, maybe challenging to some of us in terms of our thinking about the relationship between faith and prayer, uh, and some mis-teachings uh, that have been out there, but just how do we deal with uh, those times when God says no in answer to prayer? Uh, but this morning, I wanted to spend a little bit of our time just thinking about uh, a prayer for healing and restoration. And you know, these are kind of interesting days in our culture, right, in our world. Economically, this is a good season, is it not? I mean, stock market is, is soaring. Uh, jobs that continue to be uh, produced. Uh, uh, there are perhaps more people uh, being employed and employed now than uh, any uh, time in, in, in recent memory, and, and things are booming economically. And yet, while all of that is taking place, and if you live in an area of the country like this, you see houses going up all over the place, right? And you say, man, this is an economic boom here. But while all that's going on, there's still that sense of, uh, something's not exactly right. You know, we, we have kind of this age of material prosperity, and yet it could be argued moral and spiritual poverty. We have anger. We have seemingly every week another scandal being unfolded and revealed. We have accusations. We have a government that you sometimes wonder, is there an adult in the whole place, right? It seems like more, more fixed on fixing the blame than fixing problems. We have shootings in schools, in veterans' homes, in a peach stand. We have all this stuff going on. It seems like, you know, with... The economy the way it is, shouldn't we be doing better? <laughs> shouldn't we be doing better? That there's something not quite right. And you may say, well, Jeff, that's, that's preacher talk, right? I mean, you preacher types, you're always like doing stuff like that. But actually, that's not. Actually, if you read some, what you would certainly consider even secular publications, many of those are kind of asking some of the same questions. What's going on? I mean, it, it seems like kind of things ought to be better than they are. One publication put it this way, America needs a national healing. That while we have material prosperity, there is something in a fabric of our culture that needs to be healed. And maybe you sense that too. Maybe you're here today and it's not just kind of culture but there's something even in you. I think that we need healing in families. We need healing and restoration in communities. We need healing and restoration in our nation and our country. And as we think about that, I want to take us to an Old Testament verse. It was one that grew out of an encounter with God and Solomon 3,000 years ago now. 
And in those moments, he gave to them a, a, a promise. And it's a promise that certainly understood correctly in context. It was made uh, to that people. It was made in the context of the, the temple worship and all of those things. But there are those principles there that I think transcend just that moment. Uh, principles of healing and restoration that are still true uh, for us today. And so I want us to take a look at that verse and kind of parallel that with uh, Luke uh, 18, uh, a parable that Jesus told as we kind of talk about this praying for healing and restoration. Second Chronicles seven fourteen is the promise. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, as you begin to unpack that, I want you to notice a, a couple of things, kind of introductory observations. The first is this. This is not a promise for everybody. It's not a promise for everybody everywhere. He says, if my people who are called by my name. And so it, it, is a, it is a promise that is targeted. It is targeted to those who have this relationship with God. Certainly from this side of the cross, we would understand those who are called by his name, who have been called through the name of Jesus Christ to this personal relationship with God, who have been restored to a right relationship with God. And so it is this, this unique uh, promise to a specific group of people. It is not for everybody everywhere, but my people who are called by my name. Now, that's important to understand because sometimes when we think about healing and restoration, we, we want to point fingers, right? If, if the media was different, if politicians were different, if, if this group was different, if those who don't agree with me uh, politically were, were different, if, if somebody else would get their act together. But what God's Word consistently says is healing and restoration always starts with God's people. It always starts with God's people. So it's not a promise for everybody. The second introductory observation is this. It's a promise with a premise. It's a promise with a premise. There is this, this promise of forgiveness and, and healing and yet, before that, there are the, these, these premises that these things have to be evidenced in our life in order for us to experience that which God would desire to do. It is a promise, but it is a promise with a premise, and you can't claim the promise if you don't understand and participate in the premise along the way. And so, you, you can break this down, and some of you have, have heard heard this, you've read this, you uh, have heard messages perhaps, you've uh, taught uh, from this verse, and, and very often we'll talk about those four phrases there. But, but I think we can maybe even encapsulate the, the premise or the prerequisites into two thoughts, into two thoughts. And the first thought is simply this, choose humility. Choose humility. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Now, humility is one of those things that is so often misunderstood, so misconstrued in kind of our popular understanding of it along the way. Humility at its core is a proper view of myself. 
It's a proper view of myself that leads me to admit my sin, to acknowledge my need, and to accept God's grace. I, I, I understand. I see myself properly. That's what humility at its core is. And, and in that proper view of myself, I admit my sin. I admit my rebellion against God. I admit the times I've, I've acted like he's not there or he doesn't matter. I've, I've, I've wanted to be large and in charge. You know? I, I admit my sin. And I acknowledge I have a need. I have a need for healing. I have a need for restoration. I have a need for forgiveness. I have a need for, for what... I can't get on my own. I can't earn. I can't deserve. And in humility, I acknowledge my need. And that positions me to be able to accept his grace, his undeserved favor to me. Beginning with with the forgiveness that comes in salvation through Jesus Christ, the grace that sustains me each and every day. And so humility at its core is a proper view of myself. If you've been around here for a number of years, you've probably heard me put it like this. Humility is seeing myself as God sees me, no more and no less. It's no more and no less. It's not, it's not putting myself down. It's not, it's not devaluing myself. And, and the, 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 wor- the worse I speak about myself, the more humble I am. Now, that's, that's, not, that's not biblical humility. It is a proper view of myself. It's seeing myself correctly. It's seeing myself exactly as God sees me, no more and no less. Which then begins to, to beg a, a very real question. Well, if I'm going to choose humility, if, if the calling is to humble myself, how do I go about that exactly? Uh, how, how is humility developed in my life? And the answer is by seeking God's face, which is kind of the, the, the next couple of phrases there. Humble ourselves, pray and seek my face. And that's how this, this factors into this 40 days of prayer that we're talking about. Uh, humility is cultivated. Humility is cultivated when I have this conversation with God, when I am continually seeking God's face. I want you to see a connection here, uh, a right understanding of God. The Bible talks about a fear of God as the beginning of, of wisdom. This fear of God, this joy joyful all of who he is. That when I have more and more a proper understanding of God, it, it goes hand in hand with a proper understanding and view of myself. If my understanding of God is skewed, then my understanding of myself is going to be off as well. The more clearly I see and understand and comprehend who God is and his magnificence and his glory and his power, all that he is, the more I understand God, the more I know him as he is, the more clearly I'm going to see myself as I am. They go hand in hand. And when it comes to this issue of of humility, Jesus told a, a parable. And Luke's recorded in Luke's gospel in chapter 18. And in Luke chapter 18, he tells this parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector. And it is a parable of contrast, and I think it can be instructive for us when we think about how do I choose humility. Let me just read that, invite you to follow along in a, in a copy of God's Word that, that you have today. Verse 9 of chapter 18 in Luke's gospel. He, being Jesus, 
He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. A parable of of contrast between a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now, what, one of the things that happens to us, uh, particularly uh, if you've been reading the Bible, if you've been in the New Testament, if maybe if you've been in church circles for a number of years, that, that you read that and there's nothing really shocking to you about that. Because we, most of us, if you, if you have kind of that background, you hear Pharisee and you tend to think bad guy, right? That's not what the people who were hearing Jesus would have thought. The people who were hearing Jesus teach this would have thought Pharisee close to God. Pharisee, those who are serious about their relationship with God. Pharisees were up here. And the rest of us were wandering around here. And so when Jesus tells a parable like this, we don't get the shock value of it. But his original hearers would. They, they, they would have been shocked by this is, this is so counterintuitive. And not just what he's saying about a Pharisee, but he's taking a tax collector as the contrast. This one who, honestly, if Pharisees are here and the rest of us are here, they're like way down here, right? I mean, because most folks' suspicion, these guys are about as far away from God as you could possibly be because they are those extortioners. They are the ones who everybody's suspicions are lining their own pocket at the expense of their fellow countrymen in cahoots with the invading, uh, controlling Roman authorities, right? And so these folks, nobody really likes these people, right? And Jesus contrasts them in a way that totally blows what they would have expected. And he begins to talk about the Pharisee. And the Pharisee had his eyes in the wrong direction. He had a good eye on himself. (laughs) He he was telling us all about the things that, that he was doing. I'm not doing these bad things. (laughs) Not like some of these other folks. I fast twice a week. There's nothing in the requirement of the Old Testament law that required fasting twice a week. He gives a tithe. He's he's, he's looking at himself, and and basically his view of himself is, I'm pretty darn good. (laughs) If anybody deserves God's favor, God's blessing, it's me. 
He had a good eye on himself, but he had a bad eye on others. He had a bad eye on others. So what does he say about others? He talks about them being uh, extortioners. <laughs> I'm not like other men. God, I thank you. I'm not like them. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or like this tax collector. You almost hear the disdain in his voice. Humility is not about puffing ourselves up. It's not about just comparing ourselves with others and putting down. He had a bad eye on others. He, he evaluated himself very highly, evaluated others very poorly. But in the end, he really had no eye on God. He had no eye on God. Oh, he was mouthing religious language. He was bold and confident as he went up to the temple. But at the core, he had no eye on God. Because when you seek the face of God, when you begin to see God as he really is, you begin to see yourself as you really are. And as you pray and seek his face, it, it reorients you. Don't, you don't bring your resume before God. No, you do what the tax collector did. The only thing he could bring was an admission of his sin, an acknowledgement of his need, and an acceptance of God's grace. And Jesus' startling statement was, it wasn't the Pharisee with all of his properness that was right with God. It was the tax collector who caught a glimpse of, of the holiness of God, who caught a glimpse of the, the all of God, and, and he understood his need. He understood his dire situation. He knew his dependence upon the grace of God, and it was he who was in a position to receive what God could uniquely give. You see, the secret to developing humility is not looking inward at ourselves. So some of us think, I just have to spend all of my time just kind of going to searching out junk and, and putting myself down and, and seeing everything wrong with myself. No, no, no. Self-awareness is very important. But it's not just about me looking inward. It, allow God's Spirit to do that. And it certainly is not looking outward at others. Where we get into that comparison game. And most of us are horrible at evaluating ourselves, aren't we? I mean, you, you've probably read the studies. I was reading uh, something in a, in a business publication the other day. It's talking about managers evaluating themselves. And about 80 to 90% of all managers rate themselves above average, Right? The math doesn't work, right? <laughs> 80 or 90% can't be above average, right? And yet, that, that, that's kind of how we often, often do. Some of us, however, are on the other extreme. We, we compare ourselves to somebody else and we say, I'm not good enough. I, I, I'm not smart enough. I'm not, I'm not spiritual enough. I don't have their gifts or their talent or their ability. And so, if we look at others, we begin to, to devalue ourselves along the way. The, the, the road to choosing humility is not just constantly looking inward. It's not looking outward and comparing ourselves, whether in that comparison we come out way above average or way below average. No, choosing humility is choosing to look upward at the face of God. 
to look upward at the face of God. Because the more that I understand who God is, the more I'm going to have a right understanding of who I am. I, I come to that point in, in my life of prayer that, that it's not, not just about getting things from God. I come to that moment where I understand I seek God because he is worthy to be salt. If, if for no other reason, if he didn't give me anything that I, I ask for, he is worthy to be salt because of who he is. And the more that I look at him, the more that I seek his face, the more I, I live my life with that consciousness of the presence of God, the more I begin to see myself correctly along the way. But it's seeking God's face, not just God's hand. Should we ask for things? Absolutely. We've been talking about that in the 40-day journey here. But prayer is much more than coming with our list before God. Fix this, do this, apply this. But it is seeking His face. It is seeking His presence. It is seeking Him because He is worthy to be sought. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, Without faith... It is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Many of us can live our life as, as practical atheists. And say, what in the world does that mean? It's not that we would say if somebody asks us, do you believe God exists? Oh, yes, we believe that God exists. But we just functionally live almost every single day like it doesn't really matter. We don't live with a consciousness of the presence of God. We don't live attuned to seeking the face of God. One of the verses that you interacted with this week in the, the 40 Days Workbook was, was from Colossians. and talked about what, whatever you do. Uh, to, to work at it with all your heart, all your being. Because you're not doing it to please people. But you're, you're doing it before the Lord. You're doing it unto the Lord. We live as practical atheists. Not when we don't believe God exists. But when we live in a way that communicates He doesn't matter. He doesn't matter in our thinking. He doesn't matter in our seeking. He doesn't matter in our schedule. He doesn't matter in the way that we do our work or relate to our family or pursue our hobbies or whatever it may be. God honors those who seek Him. Not just by believing He exists, but by seeking His face in all things. Living like He matters in all things. How do I begin to move toward God's healing and restoration? I choose humility. And I choose humility not by putting myself down, but by looking up to God. And as I seek his face, the more I understand him, the more I have a right understanding of myself. I am willing to admit my sin, to acknowledge my need, and to accept his grace along the way. But there's another part of this premise 
And that is not only to choose humility, but to practice repentance. To practice repentance. Whoever is called by my name will pray and seek his face and turn from their wicked ways. Repentance, Richard Owen Roberts describes in this way. True repentance must include everything that is offensive to God. Everything. Including the secret sins of the heart which are often the most devastating sins. And when we talk about repentance, it's not just the, the, those, the biggies, right? It, it's not even just behavior alone. It's not just the, 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 the fruit. It, it's to deal with the root of sin in our life. When God calls us to turn from our wicked ways, when he wants to, to, to work in his people, it's, it's not just a surface thing. It's not just, I, I want you to be a, a little more moral than average. No, no, no. He's saying, I, I want to root out anything in your life that doesn't look like me. I want to root out anything in your life that would not only dishonor God, but would bring destruction to you, would bring decay and destruction to the relationships in your life. And so God hates sin. He hates it because of who he is. He hates it because of what it does to the people that he loves and cares for so deeply. And so as we think about turning from our wicked ways, sometimes we can gloss over this real quickly. We can say, well, I have not done any of those scandalous things that are making headlines, right? And God says, oh, my child." I want to go much deeper than that. I want to deal with those things in the core of your being that keep you from living whole, that keep you from healing and restoration. Jerry Bridges wrote a book a number of years ago with a very interesting title, Respectable Sins. Right? It's an oxymoron for sure. Respectable sins. But the point he was uh, making and making it well was that, that we, we kind of have sins that we get scandalous about, right? We, we, get, we, we get on our, our horse and start, start pointing fingers real quickly. Can you believe they've done this? This is an abomination to God and all of these things. And yet even as we're doing that, we, we kind of have this whole host of things that, that we rarely talk about and we rarely deal with and we kind of let uh, go un, unaddressed even within the body of Christ and almost to the point of of making them acceptable, respectable sins. And so just with the hope that perhaps the Holy Spirit might use a few of these to prompt something in you, let me just unfold a few of those very quickly. I'm just going to kind of give them in a quick list fashion and just invite you to take a moment here before the Lord and say, Lord, any of these that are showing up, would you surface them for me? An ungodliness, living my everyday life with little to no thought of God. Anxiety, worry, frustration, Evidencing a lack of trust in God. 
discontentment, unthankfulness, a lack of gratitude for the provision of God, pride, selfishness, operating consistently out of a focus of what's in it for me, a lack of self-control. If what of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, a lack of it is in all different areas of life. Gives evidence of something that God wants to root out. Impatience and irritability. Anger. Judgmentalism. A critical, harsh spirit. Envy. Jealousy of another's life, another's opportunities. The whole area of sins of the tongue. Gossip. A contentious spirit. Argumentative stubbornness. A feeling of sufficiency in our own strength. Instead of relying upon God and God's strength. Harboring unforgiveness and bitterness. Operating out of a fear of man that is more predominant than a fear of God. Pride manifests itself sometimes as an unwillingness to admit weaknesses. A flagrant disobedience to God. An unwillingness to let God have control over some specific areas of our lives. Perhaps it shows up when we fail to submit to the authorities that God has placed in our lives. And it even shows up in a lack of prayer. Now what is the purpose of that? Well, it's not to heap guilt on us. But it is to to call us, to, to call us to a, a genuine repentance. See, see, repentance has connotation very often. For some of us, it's a negative thing. It's a negative thing. We have maybe an image of some guy in scraggly dress with a sandwich board walking through an urban area in our, our country just yelling, repent! Repentance is, is a positive invitation. It's an invitation to to leave behind things that dishonor God and destroy His people. It's an invitation to turn away from those things that that eat away, that that bring not healing and wholeness, but, but bring decay and disease and destruction along the way. It's a positive invitation to turn from lesser things and turn to God, to turn to the life that He designed for us for, to become the people that He called and created us to be. And in this world, I'm never going to get there. I'm never going to get to healing and wholeness. I'm never going to get to be the person that God called me to be unless I practice repentance. And I have to understand what repentance is. Genuine repentance involves at least two things. It involves a change of thinking. A change of thinking. When Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, he talked about mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
He's not talking about uh, mourning over a, over a sadness or a loss uh, that is appropriate as that certainly is. And yes, he absolutely comforts us in that. But it's even much deeper than that. He's, he's talking about a mourning over our sin. That we, we become to the point where we, we, our sin, our rebellion, our choosing our way instead of God's way, our, our harboring of respectable sins, it causes a, a, a brokenness in us. We mourn over that. And not just the consequences. Sometimes we mourn because, oh, because of this, I'm experiencing this. But the, the, the thing that he's calling us to is not just mourning over the consequences, but mourning over what sin is and what it represents, this, this rebellion against God, this, this, this telling God he doesn't know what's best, this rejection of God along the way, this dishonoring of God and, and bringing destruction to myself. The, the New Testament word, most often translated in English, confess, homo lego. It's kind of the, 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 the part of it, the, the, the root word of it. Uh, it means to, to say the same thing, to say the same thing, to speak the same thing. And we think of confession as just saying, sorry, my bad, owning it up. But confession is much more than that. It is, it is acknowledging a spiritual reality. It is agreeing with God, agreeing with God about sin, agreeing about how horrible it is, how ugly it is, how, how detestable it is, mourning over that along the way. And agreeing with God, we confess Christ, agreeing with God the spiritual reality that my only hope is found in Jesus Christ. And so repentance starts with this change of thinking that I, I begin to, to look at and view sin differently. It's not just boys will be boys and girls will be girls. It's not just, it's, 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 it's a wink, wink, but it's this, it is this dishonoring thing to God. It is this destructive thing in my life. And, and I begin to, to mourn over the very presence of sin in my life. And that change of thinking begins to manifest itself in a change of behavior, in a change of behavior, that, that it begins as, as I look at it differently because I've been looking at God, but it manifests itself when my behavior changes. So when you come to the New Testament, John the Baptist begins to call people to repentance, and he even went after that some of that same group of Pharisees and Sadducees. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to him, you brood of vipers. That's just not very seeker-friendly or politically correct, right? And he jumps them, right? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't just mouth the words. Don't just kick in some coin. Don't just go through some religious activity. But let there be an actual change in your behavior. When Paul was testifying before King Agrippa, he talked about how Christ had encountered and commissioned him. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, notice the last phrase, performing deeds in keeping 
with their repentance. The repentance is evidenced, it's manifested in our behavior. And so there is this change of thinking and there is this change of behavior. Now, why is that essential? Because repentance is part of this pathway to healing. Repentance is part of that premise that leads us to the promise of forgiveness and healing in our lives and in our land. And I want to make sure that we understand understand this, particularly in the context of talking about prayer. In response to God's Spirit, we must live life as a lifelong repenter. So sometimes when people hear repent, they just think about an initial repentance, an initial turning from trusting in myself to trusting in the finished work of Christ, an initial turning from running my own life to saying, God, you're the the director of my life. But the truth be told, God is going to take us on a lifelong journey that will include repentance. It's kind of like peeling back the layers of an onion and we think oh okay now it's done but God says no now it's just begun and we continue to peel back the layers and and for the rest of my life on this earth for the rest of your life on this earth God is going to peel back those layers because he loves you enough not to leave that junk in there He loves you enough to call you to to remove some of that from your life, to think about it differently, to begin to walk in a different way. And so the rest of my life, there's going to be this call to repent, to see things differently, to have a change of thinking, and then a change of behavior. And maybe at first it starts with with big things, right? Scandalous things even. But but, but then, then it goes deeper. And as the layers continue to peel back, God continues to unearth some of those things. Not because he hates us, because he loves us. He loves us enough to want us to deal with the stuff so that it no longer brings dishonor to him or destruction to ourselves. And so as a lifelong repenter, There's some things I need to do, and we're just going to run through this very quickly. I need to renew my mind with the truth from Scripture consistently. It's how I center back to God. It's how I begin to get that clearer and clearer understanding of who God is and who I am. I continually renew my mind with the truth from Scripture. That's why we wanted you to be in God's Word every day during this 40-day period to build that pattern, to reinforce that pattern of renewing our mind with the truth from Scripture consistently, but to accept God's discipline faithfully, to understand that, that if we are a child of God, Hebrews talks about every child is disciplined. If I don't experience the disciplining hand of God, it may be because I'm not a child of His. A loving Heavenly Father is going to bring discipline to bear in my life. I don't resent it. I don't resist it. But I begin to understand, hey, this is something that God has intentionally brought into my life to to refine me, to shape me, to remove some things from me. And so I accept God's discipline faithfully. Painful, yes. Difficult, without a doubt. But I accept it as something that's coming from the loving hand of God. And I respond to God immediately. 
the, the, as a lifelong repenter. Hopefully, as I, the more I walk with God, the shorter the accounts that I begin to keep with God. The more quick I am to be sensitive to His Spirit and, and to turn from anything that, that doesn't look like Him, anything that, that is less than His best for my life. I respond to Him immediate, immediately, but I also obey Him completely. I obey Him completely. We've said it before, 90% obedience is disobedience. There are times when if I come and I say, well, God, I'm going to go this far. Or God, can we negotiate this point? No, no, no. God says, I I don't want to leave some of that junk in you. I want it all. I want it all. And so um, quickly, immediately, I respond completely and fully I obey, and then I follow God personally, that it is this personal journey of continually following him, of continually walking in in step with his spirit. The essence of Jesus' call was, follow me, follow me, and we are called to be those followers of Jesus Christ. And here's what happens. Here's what happens as as we seek his face, as we pray, as we choose humility, as we turn from our wicked ways, we begin to experience his healing. We begin to experience his restoration in the depths of our life. Proverbs put it this way, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. That, that is in that, in that confession, that seeing them the same way, speaking the same way about them and forsaking them, that we obtain his mercy. We experience his mercy in our being. And so we come back to the beginning. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, choose humility. And turn from their wicked ways, practice repentance. Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. I think what God is calling us to is not a band-aid, but to deal with the core issues. Maybe you remember just a little over a decade ago now, August 1st, 2007. Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's the evening rush hour. His cars were making the commute over the Mississippi River, I-35. Some of us have driven across that bridge. It suddenly gave way and collapsed. And on that incredible night, 13 people were killed, 145 injured. That section of the interstate was closed for months and months and months and months and months. As they began to investigate what in the world could have caused this, because they actually were working on the bridge when this took place. The investigators finally concluded that there were structural deficiencies that had never been adequately addressed. There had been patches and band-aids applied. But the hard work, the costly work 
of addressing those core structural issues was considered too much, would cost too much money, it would take too much time. No one was willing to make the necessary adjustments to do what was needed that would eventually avoid the disaster. Sometimes when we encounter teaching like this from God's Word or from a platform like this, we're tempted to deal with a little bit. Patch a few holes. Apply a few band-aids. Self-medicate. Get busier so we kind of fill our lives and our heads and Maybe we don't have to deal with that still small voice of God's Spirit. Because there's, there's something in us that's a little bit afraid that if we really begin to walk down this road, it may take too much time, it may be too costly, it may be too difficult. And we don't address the core structural issues. And in so doing, as an individual, as a family, as a church, as a government, as a culture, as a society, we set ourselves up for disaster. Whether that finally comes evident in this life or in what is yet to come. Because we were unwilling to hear this positive invitation of God to his people. If you will humble yourselves and pray and seek my face and turn from your wicked ways, even at times when it feels costly and painful and challenging, if you will do that, then I will hear from heaven. Forgive your sin and will bring healing and restoration to bear. That's a promise that we can grab hold of. Would you join me in prayer, please? Father, don't let us squirm out of this. Father, would you just graciously sit with us for a few moments would you graciously sit with us over these next few days and even weeks father would you graciously speak to us about anything that doesn't look like you father would you call us with that positive, loving invitation to pray and to seek your face. The more and more we understand you, the more we'll live in all of you, the more we'll see ourselves correctly and live with humility. And from that platform, we'll be free to turn from lesser things, to turn to you and your design for our life. And in that journey, 
we experience your forgiveness, your cleansing, your healing, your restoration. Father, as we just sit over these next couple minutes before you, would you just show us, show us where we need to experience your healing and your restoration. Show us how to choose humility and practice repentance. It's going to invite you just to sit before the Lord.